The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report Finance Presenter on ABC News and a columnist for the New Daily, just back from two weeks holiday. Holiday, my foot. And I'm Stephen Mayne, contributor at Eureka Report, founder of Crikey, shareholder advocate and City of Manningham councillor. And we are the, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. And and it was, yeah, right, it wasn't a holiday because I wrote... 10,000 co- words on something. 20,000. 20,000 words. <laughs> on, it was for a quarterly essay. So, which is coming out in November, which you'll be no doubt standing by the letterbox. So you'll be gigging. So you've been gigging for Maurice Schwartz in between working for the ABC, the New Daily, and Investmart. How many bosses have you got, Alan? Here? You're you're unbelievable. In between, Maury, like thirty-five speeches a year. We love Maury. He's good. Yeah, I'm actually. Now, they asked me to do a quarterly essay. I thought, well, it's on housing, right? Yeah. And uh, and I really enjo- I really enjoyed. Just delving into one topic, yeah, uh, deeply, and writing about it was great. Yeah. And that your first that's, that's is that your longest, apart from books, your longest form of journalism you've ever done? Uh, Two weeks, twenty thousand words. Apart from books, yeah. Yes. Well, how many books have you done now? You must be up to I don't know double figures. Yeah, not that I wrote most of them. No, you sort of it's oh, like I'm not packaged up columns, best ofs, you know, all this yeah, sort of yeah. stuff. But no, I'm looking forward. To that. That'll be uh, so. You're really happy with the quality of what you've done. So far, yeah. Well, my wife. You're still more importantly, doing it. my wife's happy with it. Well, she's the chief editor, isn't she? She is. I wish my wife had read my stuff. Anyway, but um, so speaking of housing um, uh, and uh, house prices and so on, the interest rates are clearly or seem to be going up again. We got the Reserve Bank minutes this week saying that. But importantly, I think this week was um, on the same day as the, res- the minutes came out. Um, uh, Michelle Bullock did a speech. Deputy Governor of the Reserve Bank, and she's copped a real pounding after that. And so, poor old Michelle, it was actually a perfectly reasonable speech. And I'd urge our listeners to go to the Reserve Reserve Bank website and and check it out, because it's a really good explanation of how the Reserve Bank views employment. Mm. The, um, uh, The headline of the speech was Achieving Full Employment, and it was about, you know, how they juggle the mandate or the objective of achieving full employment with the objective of inflation and how they view it. Um, but what everyone seized upon is her view uh, that, which isn't really expressed. I mean, it's, they've, they've been predicting 4.5% unemployment next year for quite for a while. She seemed to be saying, without directly saying it, that that's what they're trying to achieve mm. as opposed to just predicting it. And... That may, you know, given that unemployment is currently three point six percent, that means another hundred and forty thousand people uh, will be unemployed. And so she's she's copped a real kicking from the unions and everyone for for apparently saying that she wants to uh, uh, put one hundred and forty thousand people out of work, which is not really what she said. No. Although it is true that I think it's fair to say that the Reserve Bank would be much more comfortable with 4.5% unemployment than 3.6%. And that is, that is, I think, what they're trying to achieve. 
because they think the 3.6% unemployment is below full employment. Yeah. Is too low. Yeah. And that they that they and it's all a question of what do you define as full employment? Hmm. I mean, we got the double digit in Keating's recession we had to have. So even if it gets to 5%, that's still historically very low. And we're we're still in labour shortages. That's right. So I I think I'm getting sick of this open season on the Reserve Bank. Um, Whoever takes Phil Lowe's job is going to be in a very, very difficult position because the implied deal will be that they'll go easy on the rate rises. So they're going to not not appoint a genuinely independent central banker and the person who gets the gig will come in a straitjacket, in my view, and will probably go easy on the rate rises because the mob and Labor and the unions and everyone is just ripping into them unfairly. Our rates are still lower than most of the rest of the world. Including yours truly, I must say, that I've been ripping into them as well, as I'm sure you... Yeah, but the broken uh, promise was is is the one thing I think that you can really spray them for the the three year prediction, and then apart from that, all his appearances before committees and speeches since, and you know, I think I think he, it's utterly defendable what the Reserve Bank has done thus far, thus far, even the twelve increases in twelve months. Inflation's at seven percent. You got to deal with that. It's coming down. It is inflation is falling now. Yeah. I think that the rate increase this month was unnecessary because mm. inflation, inflation is already falling. Um, and I think that they're – but look, you know, I'm not in there. They've got all this input, this economic input and so on. I mean, honestly. You know the big – I mean, I think it's interesting that the corporate gouging by Australia's oligopolistic industry structures is justifiably getting more pressure at the moment. Like, I think the fact that the big four banks are still to this day making $40 billion pre-tax and have a market value collectively of $400 billion this morning, they have not cut their margins or gone out of their way to help their customers in any meaningful way. So I think they should be getting the more heat. Well, in fact, that was, in fact, the best thing in or the most the most interesting thing in the minutes the other day was the Reserve Bank calling out companies Correct. Uh, for... Uh, excessive price increases, although they didn't use that word exactly. They said something like they're indexing they're indexing their price rises to past inflation um, as opposed to future inflation. So I, and that was interesting. I, I sort of did a column for the New Daily this morning. It was an excellent column. That, yes, it was an excellent column. In which I looked back over the history of um, attempts to control prices mm. um, and really found that the only one that was effective was Alan Fells. Yeah. As head of the ACCC, where he where he publicised them, yeah, he named and shamed companies that were price gouging, yeah. But in order to do that, the thing is that what and I had a long conversation with Alan this week about it. He, what he explained is that in order to do that properly, you have to have a lot of resources mm. because you have to understand the markets. In order to call out price gouging, you really have to know that that's what's going on mm. and that the price rises are not justified. Um, and to do that requires quite a lot of research and so that's what he did but there's a there's an excellent research tool available to all of us alan and it's called share prices so when you look at the qantas share price and when you look at the published annual results of qantas 
you don't need an ACCC research team to say that you have got ridiculous market power and you are gouging your customers unfairly and we should be uh, sicking the media pack onto you, Qantas. I mean, yesterday, poor old Rex, Regional Express, trying to compete you know, with Qantas and Virgin on the Sydney-Melbourne route, there's a long list of companies in the graveyard that have taken on Qantas aggressively from, from Southern Cross to Ansett to, to Virgin. Uh, to Compass. To Compass, yeah. So poor old Rex shares fell, you know, 10% yesterday to a 12-month low of $1.06. You know, they've warned of a $35 million loss for the year. The market cap's only $110 million, you know. Where's the competition regulator making life easy for Rex? and trying to deliver a viable third competitor in our duopolistic airline market. That, that's the sort of thing where, where aviation prices are too expensive at the moment. The duopoly are gouging. It's clear for all to see and nothing is being done about it. Now, um, just moving on, you've spent a little while in Canberra, uh, no doubt reasonably cold, um, trying to prevent Australia's addiction to gambling, which ain't good for you. Yes, well, look, we, we had the Australian Local Government Association National General Assembly last week, which was uh, had 1,137 delegates at the Canberra Casino. Actually, no, the Canberra Exhibition Centre, which just happens to be next to the, the casino, which is the only casino in Australia without poker machines because the Labor Party and the Catholic Church don't want their large pokies clubs to be impacted by the casino. So it's a casino without poker machines in Canberra. But anyway... I digress. So I went up there and Manningham put up a, a really hard-hitting gambling motion. You know, it was calling for a tobacco-style advertising ban, a federal gambling regulator, taking so over that, the was, Northern Territory licences for sports bet. Was that a Manningham it resolution a Manningham or motion. a Maine resolution? Well, it was a Maine resolution that I walked in at very short notice to my colleagues who voted unanimously for it. <laughs> I thank them for it. They all went... Oh, oh God, this is no, just Stephen's Steve, thing. Jesus. All right, you know, whatever. If, if, if shut on. up. You know, we will never. Just, they never vote to spend any money when I try and spend money. But if it's just a motion in Canberra, they oh, give him what he wants. That's all right. Anyway, but it was a six-point kick-ass motion. You know, fully cashless, pokies, buybacks. Um, even saying that the last two points were really, really uh, aggressive, like legislating to the effect that federally registered political parties, i.e. the Labor Party, are ineligible for federal per-vote funding if they or any of their state affiliates own and operate poker machine venues. So that's basically saying no public funding for the Labor Party. And then one for the Catholic Church, point six. Removing the DGR status of any church or charity which continues to directly own and operate licensed gambling entities, such as poker machine clubs. So this was a motion directly attacking the Labor Party, the Catholic Church, the industry. And I thought, i got no chance. And it got up. 71% of voting delegates supported it, even though all the regional New South Wales councils like Broken Hill and Hawkesbury got up and did their usual, oh, they give money to the clubs, they're fantastic. You know, one bloke got up, he's actually on a pokies club, the, the Hawkesbury councillor. He's on a he's on a, the Windsor RSL, which takes 10 million a year from pokies gamblers, and he stands up as a councillor and doesn't declare that and then says, you know, but anyway, it got up. So for me, that just said... So what happens now? Well, it's official policy of, of all councils in Australia is that we want full advertising, but we want all these things. And so I'm hoping that we can get the, – the only way the Labor Party can get out of pokies is if they do a motion at their national conference. So there's 400 delegates going to Brisbane in August. For every three years they have a national conference. So I'm just looking around for a couple of delegates to put that divest, divestment motion up. I 
got up at a panel and directly asked uh, the local government minister, Christy McBain, and, uh, and Mr. Andrew Giles, the immigration minister, if they would move and second such a motion. So I stood over at the conference and said that, and they said, oh, I wouldn't talk about that. But basically it was great. And then I stayed, I stayed at the Canberra Labor Club. So the Canberra Labor Club was open in Belconnen, was opened by Gough Whitlam in 1979. It's the biggest of the, of the Labor Party's pokies clubs in Canberra. They make so much money, they've been able to afford to build a $40 million Mercure hotel above the pokies club. You've got to walk past the poker machines to get breakfast, right? So they always knock back my membership whenever I try and join them to ask questions at the AGM. So this time, we spent $1,000, ratepay spent $1,000 staying four nights at the Mercure Belconnen. And then I checked out and I said, right, I want to join the Labor Club. You know, I'm a loyal hotel customer. And they said, sorry, you're suspended, blah, blah. (laughs) (laughs) They usually send me like a $9 refund check from the Pokies Jackpot Fund saying the board has rejected your membership. So this time I said, I want it in writing. I said, here's my $66 in cash because they were trying to say we can't take your payment. I said, I left the cash. I said, I've paid. I want a process with the board. You're meant to be a democratic organisation. Accept my membership. I'm coming to your AGM. And it just reminded me how fantastic our shareholder system is, is that public companies can't do that. You buy the shares, you can go to the AGM, whereas a dodgy pokies club owned by the Labor Party, three times now the board has passed a resolution rejecting my duly funded application to become a regular member. Oh, fantastic, Stephen. Well, listen, uh, before we get on to questions, I just want to mention that um, I uh, saw an ad on TV the other day of, uh, for Energy Australia saying that if you join them as a new customer, either gas or electricity, uh, no, gas, they'll give you 25% discount. Now, I'm an Energy Australia gas company and I rang them up and said, I want the 25% if you don't mind. And I must Did say... Did you say, do you know who I am? It took true grit because it took did, me an hour on the phone Did the waiting. Philippine call centre op, uh, worker recognise your voice and your fame? Uh, no, he did not, but, but uh, the guy in the Philippines was terrific. He was a lovely fellow, Fino, his name was. We had a lovely conversation and he, uh, he gave me the 25% discount. It was great. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll move my electricity across to Energy Australia as well uh, if you give me a discount on that. He said, sure, 20% off electricity. So, so listeners, I just say to you, get uh, on the phone. Get on the phone. Tell them you're going to move, yeah. or tell them you're a customer, your existing customer, and you want the discount. Come on. And we've just let our Foxtel subscription lapse, and we're going to do the same thing with them because you only get a decent price when you threaten to go or you actually do go, and then they ring up and they give you this "please come back" offer. It's the same with shareholders in capital raisings. The people who get ripped off in Australia are the people who are just asleep at the wheel, not opening the mail, just going about their life, not getting a honeymoon rate, not getting a a refinancing deal on their credit card. And speaking of power prices, I was very impressed that the Labor budget in Queensland last week came out with a $1.5 billion power rebate package. So because they've introduced the world's highest coal royalties and they got $10 billion more than expected this financial year in coal royalties, $10 billion more than they budgeted for after they introduced the world's highest coal royalties. So they've said, you know, free cash for everyone. So up there, it's $550 all households. It's $650 for all small businesses off your power bills and it's $1,072 for vulnerable households who qualify under the hardship provisions. 
just goes to show, you know, and meanwhile WA is still sitting there with ridiculously low 7% iron ore royalties and you've got three families worth $114 billion over there and a state debt of $30 billion. So Queensland has shown you can tax the foreign miners and socialise the benefits to the battlers who are struggling with their power bills and well done to them. William says, thanks for the erudite analysis in these troubled times. It's of great comfort. I have a question for the show. Does the panel feel that now is a good time for a millennial like me to buy a first home? Should one take advantage of the less eye-watering than usual prices or sit tight and earn interest off one's savings? Is this the best chance in a decade to get into the housing market or the worst? Uh, Obviously, I'm not asking for financial advice. Now, uh, so, William, I would say firstly that... um, uh, absolutely nobody knows whether there's going to be a housing crash. A lot of people say there are, is going to be, um, but uh, you can't know. Nobody can know for sure, uh, but it's possible. So you have to make your own mind up on that. Uh, if you come to the conclusion that there is going to be a crash, by which I mean more than 20% fall in house prices, uh, then if that's your view, then you should hold off for sure. But uh, you don't know, and nobody knows. So my view on buying a house to live in is that if you find a house that you like and you want to live in it, buy it. Because over the period of 10 or 15 or whatever years you live in it, the price you pay will wash out. It'll be fine. Yeah. But just remember, William, to compare the interest payments on whatever loan you have to get with how much you're paying in rent at the moment. So there's that sort of uh, weekly cash flow impact. And don't borrow more than, you know, 80%. You know, don't – just don't buy your dream home as your first home, you know. So just just be modest in what you buy because I'm more on the, on the side of I think it's going to come off a bit more with rates going up, unemployment going up and our house prices being still historically very high compared to the rest of the world. So I don't think – I still think it's a bit expensive, the housing market. But everything has a price on the day and set your limit – and, you know, occasionally you can just luck onto a bargain because a few people don't turn up to the auction. So, but just don't go in there and pay 200000 above reserve, you know, <laughs> that sort of stuff. All right, Peter. In 20 years, Australia's population will be 36 million. We're all ageing, so we'll need 700,000 to a million immigrants a year. That's two new cities the size of Canberra every year. We don't build a new Canberra every year. We stack people on top of each other like Hong Kong or Singapore. Did we Australians decide on this, a no-backyard policy? How do we help our grandchildren grow up like we did in a, in a house rather than a unit, with a backyard, a pool, or maybe a tennis court? Or are you too young to remember how it was? Please also do the sums for 100 years' time. Well, Peter's all over the place. For, yeah. for a start... Who has a tennis court in their backyard? Come on. Well, apart from, well, apart from that, I mean, there's no way that we're going to have 700,000 to a million immigrants a year. The, uh, so it's 400 to 450,000 this year and we're, gonna, we're going back to a steady kind of flow of 200 to 230,000 immigrants per year, which has been the average for, I don't know, 15 years. So that's what we're, we're looking at. And uh, the current number of people per house on average is 2.48. So you could divide that number of immigrants by 2.48 and you get about 90,000 Houses required per year. So what? I mean, what do you? You're, you? Uh... I disagree with with Peter. I mean, Australia has the third lowest population in the world in terms of people per square kilometre, and then everyone says, "Oh, but we're mainly desert." But the answer to that is, 
we have the lowest population in the world of people per square kilometre of arable land. So we're even less populated when you factor in the desert. So I think I said last week that, you know, that the, 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 the country of Haiti has 58 times the population density of Tasmania uh, in terms of people per square kilometre. So we should be 100 million. We're the least, we're, the, we're, we're Spartan, we're sparsely populated. And I just look at the city of Manningham where I'm a, I'm a councillor, okay, we've got five and a half thousand lots that are over an acre and the planning rules say you can't subdivide. So we're saying an acre is, that's 4,000 square kilometres. You're not allowed to subdivide. So we've got 1,400 private tennis courts in Manningham because all you can do on an acre is tennis court, run some horses, fruit trees, a pool and a big mansion. And then if you go 42 kilometres further out from Wonga Park, which is our last suburb, the most liberal voting um, booth in the whole of Melbourne, um, you get to the last subdivision in Pakenham, okay, where people are living cheek by jowl on one-tenth of an acre. So this idea that there's skyscrapers everywhere like Hong Kong and Singapore is ridiculous. Yes, we are the most densely capital city populated country in the world. And yes, there's congestion issues for lack of infrastructure in Melbourne and Sydney. But, you know, my daughter's just flown into Hong Kong overnight. I'm shocked by the skyline. Absolutely. It's the world's most stunning skyline. This idea that Australia is anything like Hong Kong or Singapore is a joke. And I did ask a question when Andrew Giles ignored my pokies question at the conference last week. I did say, Peter Dutton came in two days ago and was dog whistling about immigration. 1.5 million, it's too much. Will you, as the immigration minister, fight this? And he launched a massive attack on Dutton and Dan Tian and said the way they are behaving is a disgrace. He's appalled and they're hypocrites because they attacked them for not fast-tracking skilled visas and then they're now dog whistling 1.5 million over four years when their own record was more than that. So I agree with Andrew Giles. Well done. We're a migrant nation. Um, we need the labour and it's not scary that uh, we've got 400 or 450 coming in a year and we should decentralise more. That's the policy we should do is decentralise. Well, we should decentralise, but we should also build more housing in Manningham and subdivide the acres, right? Yes, there, I mean, there, the, needs the, to be, there needs to be more housing built close to the yeah, cities. Well, that's what is. I'm subtly saying, but I get voted out if I say that publicly, Alan. So the NIMBYs versus the YIMBYs, we don't have a train or a tram, though. We're the only one of Melbourne's 30 councils that don't have a train or a tram, and we've still got 3,000 uh, unsewered properties with septic tanks. So you shouldn't be What's building... What's that got to do with anything? Well, you shouldn't be building dense housing where you've got hills, no public transport, and no sewer. Okay, so, you know... But, you know, Doncaster Hill and Box Hill and all those areas can take in many, oh, many you're more just people. a pathetic politician trying to ensure you don't get voted out. Oh, I'm retiring anyway, so I don't care anymore. Now, Stephen, Stephen says... says Evan had an interesting point last week about how Labor won't touch GST and the Libs won't touch super. Wouldn't increasing the GST also work to partially redistribute from cashed-up boomers if you compensated workers and pensioners for the increase? They're no worse off, but not for those living off their super. It might be less impactful but more palatable than increasing superannuation taxes. Well, I don't know. Um, no, I there's no know. connection between increasing the GST and getting cash off old people. It's just if you want to get cash off old wealthy people, you increase superannuation taxes, 
you abolish negative gearing and you introduce death taxes and you stop the ridiculous uh, six billion a year of, of cash handouts for franking compensation. So yeah. um, th- that's that's how you actually get, and then you just give it to battlers who need it. I mean, the GST is going to bring in eighty three billion this year. Income tax is going to be three hundred and twenty seven billion next financial year. So as I've argued before, that we're underdoing GST and we're overdoing income tax. But look, if you did want to do some GST tweaks to help people on cost of living, then you know what would you what would you abolish the GST on? Nappies, cereals, pet food, you know, a whole bunch of stuff you could do um, if you wanted to help with cost of living. Alex says, I was considering the possibility of purchasing an Airbnb using my, a portion of my super fund. I'm interested in the legalities of doing that. In particular, if I manage the unit myself, including cleaning, would that cause a problem with the arm's length rules? If I was retired and drawing down on my super and the super was getting income from the Airbnb, would it be an issue? Anyway, he goes on, and I think the bottom line is that, interestingly, Airbnb had a stall at the ALGA conference last week. They were the shiny, new, never-seen-here-before never exhibitor, and obviously they want to lobby councils to not introduce Airbnb taxes and that sort of stuff, even though most of the power lies with state governments. So I went up to these two ladies in the Airbnb stall, had a chat about regulation, how you're going, and I said, you know, what's the reaction been from councillors? And they said, oh... Lots of them are coming up and saying, oh, we're hosts and we love it. And you know, can we get some marketing material, please? <laughs> so it just reminded me... Not a conflict me, of interest, of course. It just reminded me of how many people are actually supplementing their income using Airbnb, uh, from politicians to councillors down. And interestingly, the, the, the state that is most likely to hit them is actually WA. They're the ones that are actually serious. What are they likely a six, to do? Six-month limit, something what, like that. Oh, six-month Six months limit, what? The you can't Airbnb a property for more than six months a year or some sort of a time oh, limit. I see. Um, but there's no, councils can't really do much. I mean, Byron Bay is carrying on about it at the moment and Mornington's got a bit of a register. You can have a, you can have a register, but councils can't really limit it. And it's, it's quite hard. I mean, it's, it's private property. People, you know, you can't run a hotel in a resi zone, of course, so you've got the planning rules. Um, but... It is quite, it's, you know, people should not expect their councils to fix this and uh, I don't think there's any problems with a super fund buying an Airbnb unit but obviously you, you've got to lease it out to a third party, you can't lease it out to your sister and I wouldn't be rorting and paying yourself cleaning bills, I'd just be having a commercial cleaner and just run it as a straight investment. Nick says, I know this topic has been discussed before but with the prospect of declining office building valuations in Sydney and Melbourne, CBDs and the large unlisted property holdings and super funds, do you think that potential write-downs over the next two years could have a material impact on super fund balances and would changing into a product without these types of holdings be a wise move or is the potential impact immaterial? Excellent question. Good question. What do you think? I think that there should be big write-downs but even if there were, just the office category is not a big enough asset allocation cohort within the Aussie Super First State, you know, the big the big super funds. So, you know, because they've also got, you know, toll roads, airports, it's in that broader sort of unlisted long term. Um, so I don't think it, even if, you know, you with a really ruthless valuation, it might lower the return by what? one percent in one year so i just don't think it's it would be material 
as opposed to the impact of, you know, dramatic increases in, in interest rates causing a 20% equity market um, correction. But look, the, the, you know, everyone is faking it. These valuations have crashed um, and the big funds are still trading at material discounts to NTA, 20%. And they're not being honest and coming out and actually writing it down to market. And, and interestingly, most companies can't write up their assets every six months like property trusts can. You know, BHP doesn't write up the value of their iron ore operations from, you know, it's now worth $180 billion. Last year, it was worth $170 billion. I mean, it's weird that they are even allowed to, to do, do that. that and to put it onto their profits. Yeah. Book, a, book, a, you know, book it as a profit. A, a valuation allows you to book a profit. I mean, we do it at Manningham every year. Our property goes up by $80 million. We've now We're now claiming we're worth $2.5 billion. But we can't sell off $2 billion worth of property. It's totally illiquid. Yet every year we value our parks. You know, Ruffy Lake Park, 68 hectares is worth $130 million, we say. Yeah, but it costs us about $3 million a year to mow the bloody thing. So it's actually a negative <laughs> asset from a cash-generative unit point of view, which is what the auditors look at when true. they're doing valuations. That's and a very good point. Okay, well said, Stephen. Jaden, your turn. Given the blunt impact of interest rate hikes, could the government of the day impact inflation through more well-considered taxes that, while likely unpopular, could have a stronger impact on inflation? What taxes could have a good impact well, it's absolutely on inflation? True. That is absolutely true, Jaden, but it will never happen. Um, you, could, you could have a big impact on inflation by putting up the GST, which would affect everybody. The trouble with interest rates is they don't affect everybody. Mm. They only affect borrowers. Um, and um, uh, taxes do affect everybody. So, yes, but that's not going to happen. It's, um, it's firstly too, uh, uh, too painful for politicians to do that. And, yeah. and also, you know, it's really not something that can be moved around easily. No. So if you're talking about a, a, a tax increase that will take demand out of the economy, well, you know, you could do a – I mean – you could do a wealth tax or, you know, a death tax or something that just soaks soaks cash out. But, uh, I mean, it, it is interesting. I think I think the, the better way to look at it is how governments can subsidise to reduce cost of living. So if you take the GST off nappies, cereal and pet food, as I said before, just like the state governments are pumping billions into subsidising house price, uh, power prices and just like the Morrison government's excellent uh, cut in the petrol excise, that is the best the – be rather than – freezing prices or regulating prices, actually subsidising essential services. I'll give you one little anecdote. The City of Manningham, we've got the third biggest basketball club in, in Australia, the Bull and Boomers. They paid us half a million dollars last year to rent stadiums off us. And we're about to put the price up from $50 an hour to $55 an hour, a 10% increase. And they're charging their kids almost $700 a year to play summer and winter domestic basketball. So as a council, we could come in and say, we're cutting the hiring rate to $20 an hour as long as you cut the, the cost of basketball for kids in Manningham from $700 a year to $300 a year. That is a direct cost of living move that our council could do to save families struggling to pay for their kids to play basketball. But we won't do it because we've outsourced it to the Richmond Footy Club. They've promised us a lot of, a lot of cash for commercially managing our venues and, and uh, we're going to put the prices up. <laughs> We've got time for one more question. Okay. Jeez, I'll be in real trouble after all this. Oh, Back in the council chamber. I, so, I might Stephen. get code of conducted for this stuff. Um, you go with the last one. Uh, um, 
I'm just trying to decide which one. Um, Matt says, the way the media reports interest rates rising, it seems every increase is a surprise and that there's only one to two more expected for the year before it's held steady or even get some cuts. But inflation in Australia is still around 7%, way above the target of 2.3%. Despite 12 raises the past year and a bit and counting, isn't this a sign that rates are still too low to bring inflation back down and we should expect rates to keep increasing at this pace? Like at least another six-plus increases. Goodness gracious, Matt. Um, uh, Well, there is an expectation. The market expects uh, at least one more uh, rate hike, Yeah, possibly two. Um, So, yeah, look, there is an expectation that there are more rate hikes to come. Um, Just bearing in mind that the the Reserve Bank drives not in looking at the rear vision mirror as to what inflation has been in the past, but what it expects inflation to be in the future. And it's trying – and monetary policy has a very significant lag, you know, like it's at least six months, maybe 12 months uh, or more. And so what it does today is affecting inflation next year, um, not – so the fact that inflation is 7% or was 7% in the March quarter uh, is neither here nor there. Yeah. I mean, they might, they might do one or two tops. We can't afford it because of the scale and size of our household debt. We've we got the highest household debt in the world, albeit manageable from a balance sheet point of view because no one else has got our compulsory super, which broadly, you know, $3 trillion of debt, $3 trillion of super, it's vir- virtually nets off. But look, you've got to also remember that, because the early question from Luke is that some people benefit from rising interest rates. I mean, there's $40 billion of bonds put up for people in aged care. So all the aged care operators are suddenly getting great interest rates. Insurance, QBE Insurance said, you know, their AGM, they're one of the few operators that like it. I'll give you an example of council. City of Hume in Melbourne, uh, $300 million of cash. They're the most cashed up council in Victoria. They get $20 million a year in rates from Melbourne Airport. So they're loving it. Like, with our $90 million of cash at Manningham, Whitehorse got two twenty million, Maribyrnong's got one hundred and fifty million. We're all benefiting from these rising interest rates, big time. So, um, but yeah, the, the, those are the household debt. It's just, it's just huge pain. And so, one or two rises, tops to go. I reckon that'll be it. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone, to today's episode of the Money Cafe. We'll be back next week with James Thompson. So, send in a question for us. Uh, to the Money Cafe at eurekareport.com.au and we'll answer it then. Keep them short, don't forget. Um, uh, until next week, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, etc. And I'm Stephen Main. Just happy to be sitting at the table with a great man and I'll see you in a fortnight. <laughs>